Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In 1904, the world got its first glimpse of the now iconic sculpture, The Thinker. You know, the muscular, naked guy sitting on a rock with his chin on his hand, who appears to be lost in thoughts, as if wondering where he left his pants. The original plaster statue was called The Poet, intended as part of a larger collection of figures, but took on a new name and a new life of its own when it was cast in bronze and purchased by the French government in 1906. And when I say that the statue took on a life of its own, well, you could almost take that literally. You see, there are a lot of people who believe that since its original creation, the statue has actually shifted its position. You see, if you look at it today, the thinker is posing with his chin resting on his hand, his fingers pointing towards his own chest. But a lot of folks recall the statue resting its forehead against a clenched fist. Apparently, there are several references to this specific pose in various textbooks and novels. There's also an antique photograph of George Bernard Shaw, the man who modeled for the statue, posing with his forehead resting upon his fist, a photograph that was taken the same night that the statue was formally unveiled. And now that you think about it, you're not entirely sure which pose is accurate, are you? So either the statue got restless and moved, or else we just aren't remembering it properly. About a year ago, I preached a sermon about the so-called Mandela Effect, the phenomenon in which some people remember things differently than they supposedly occurred. Now, the premier example is the demise of Nelson Mandela. Apparently, a lot of folks remember Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s, vividly recalling news stories and even a televised funeral. But Nelson Mandela didn't actually pass away until 2013. There are a hundred other examples of things that have supposedly changed, like the pose of the thinker or certain text from the King James Bible, like the bit about uh, the lion lying down with the lamb in Isaiah. It's actually not a lion, but a wolf. Proponents of the Mandela effect believe that history, along with certain biblical texts, have actually been changed by some unknown force. Now, in that sermon that I preached, I spoke of the fragility of memory and proposed that people were probably misremembering the past rather than the past being literally altered. The thinker hasn't actually moved. We just start remembering it properly. The scriptures haven't changed. They've just been translated differently. And boy, did that make a lot of people angry. That video of the sermon got more than 10 times the usual views on YouTube and it also boasted a lively comments section filled with detractors and critics who did not care one bit for what I had to say. At least a dozen or so folks on there accused me of 
misleading my parishioners, of being a wolf in sheep's clothing, and of ignoring the fact that certain biblical texts had in fact been altered by the devil. A couple of folks were especially upset for some reason that I had referenced the jazz fusion duo Steely Dan in the sermon. Let's preach Steely Dan from the pulpit, one commenter sneered. Most pastors will not push Satan's world on his parishioners. I wonder if Steely Dan will appear in the Bible next, another wrote. Maybe at that point, this guy will finally believe the obvious truth that the text is changing. Yes, a lot of people apparently believe that history has been altered and that portions of the Bible have been mysteriously rewritten. My Bible has been supernaturally changed, and you can't convince me otherwise, one person remarked. I've read the scriptures for 50 years, and the words in my Bibles have changed supernaturally, wrote another. Now, maybe that's true, and maybe the thinker really moved of its own accord. I like to think I have an open mind. Or maybe, just maybe, we don't like it when the world that we remember is no longer consistent with the world we see around us. Maybe history doesn't change, but our perception of it does. Maybe the past is carved in stone, but we can view it from different angles. Either way, I suppose people can criticize me all they like. But as a wise man once said, no one ever built a statue for a critic. In fiction and literature, of course, the past can be changed. This is sometimes called retroactive continuity, or retconning for short. When the author Sir Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes in one of his novels, he later claimed that the beloved character had actually faked his death so that he could write more stories about him and please the fans. In film, it's not uncommon to find sequels that change the events of previous films throwing a wrench into their narrative continuity. Like the movie Highlander 3, for instance, which completely ignores the meticulously crafted backstory of Highlander 2, probably because that backstory was ridiculous, itself a terrible retcon of the original Highlander. Although I'm sure you'll agree that the writers managed to turn things around for Highlander 4, which wasn't too bad. You've all seen Highlander 4, right? Anyway, retroactive continuity can really make things confusing, creates more questions than it answers. It takes a story that we think we know and changes it, often upsetting fans of the original material in the process. Imagine if someone claimed to have discovered a new gospel in which it explained that Jesus' miracles were in fact elaborate parlor tricks and illusions in the vein of David Copperfield. I can't imagine that that would go over very well. Understandably, no one likes it when someone interferes with beloved traditions and long-held beliefs. The Bible also features its share of retroactive continuity, inserting stories into the historical record to make sense of the present. In biblical scholarship, we call these ideological myths stories that explain a contemporary tradition or practice. And today's text is a great example of this. Bethel was an important place in ancient Israel, a cultic center of religious activity. 
And this story about Jacob is inserted into the historical record to boost the shrine's credibility as a sacred place. Imagine if I got up here and told you all that this church was established by a guy who had a vision of God telling him to build it. That's essentially what happens at Bethel. Jacob, fleeing from the wrath of his brother Esau, lays his head on a stone to sleep and dreams of a magnificent stairway to heaven. And upon awakening, he takes the stone that he used for a pillow and he erects it as a monument, a shrine that would become the altar at the shrine of Bethel. It became a sacred thing, an object of veneration, imbued with religious significance and the weight of history. It would be a shame, those ancient Israelites would tell you, if someone tore it down. In a distant field in Virginia, there are 43 giant crumbling statues. They are the heads of the first 43 American presidents, 20-foot-tall busts that were created for a national theme park that went bankrupt. The owner didn't feel right about destroying them when the park closed, so they were moved to a remote corner of his farm and severely damaged in the process. They're cracked riddled with holes and stained by the elements. The back of Lincoln's head was obliterated by a crane when it was moved, eerily reminiscent of the wound that killed him. Some of them, their cheeks worn with rivulets from the rain, appeared to be weeping. There is a debate raging in our country right now about the role of statues and monuments to our history. In the midst of a renewed and often heated conversation about race, statues of slave owners and Confederate generals, men like Charles Lynn and Robert E. Lee, have been toppled by protesters, some of them smashed or thrown into the river. Countless more are currently in the process of being formally removed by local authorities. In response, the president has condemned anyone who, in his words, has attempted to, quote, wipe out our history, defame our heroes, erase our values. You can't change history, the president tweeted in regards to these monuments, but you can learn from it. And I agree with that part. You can't change history, but you can learn from it. Which is why I think that these Confederate monuments and statues probably ought to be removed from the public square where they serve as objects of veneration and put somewhere where they can serve an educational purpose. To quote one of the greatest Americans who ever lived, Indiana Jones, it belongs in a museum. History doesn't change, but our perspective of it does. Maybe the past is carved in stone, but we can view it from different angles. The late 20th century theologian Wolfhart Pannenberg believed and argued that history is actually God's revelation to us. It is a scripture of sorts to be interpreted and reinterpreted in light of the present. And as it happens, the phrase retroactive continuity was first coined in a book about Wolfhart Pannenberg's theology. Pannenberg's conception of retroactive continuity, the author writes, ultimately means that history flows fundamentally from the future into the past, and that the future is not basically 
product of the past. In other words, we are supposed to interpret and reinterpret history. That's precisely what is happening right now in America. We all grew up with a fairly rosy portrait of American exceptionalism, a history written by white men for white men. Now that in itself was a revision and a retcon of the highest order. Now we are taking a clearer look at the past and we see all of the cracks and stains amidst the beauty, a scene not unlike that field in Virginia, breathtaking craftsmanship, weathered by racism and sexism, the statues of 43 white men with strong jaws staring at each other, the only world they know. But friends, America is much bigger and much more diverse and much more beautiful than they can see with their unblinking eyes. It's probably worth noting that about 600 years before Christ was born, the Israelite King Josiah tore down the shrine at Bethel. Why? Because like so many temples back then, it had become infested with greed and corruption. It was, in Josiah's eyes, no longer worthy of veneration. When I was much younger, the town I grew up in, Meriden, Connecticut, budgeted funds for a restoration of the downtown area. It was sorely needed, as Main Street had been falling on hard times for decades. Nearly all of the shops were gone, their storefronts marred by cracked glass and faded signs. Grass has sprouted up in the cracks on the sidewalk in front of the First Congregational Church where I was baptized and confirmed. Downtown Meriden was economically depressed, had been for years, ever since they built the nearby shopping mall, and it was badly in need of some kind of revitalization. But instead of investing in local businesses or cleaning up the area or offering economic incentives, the city council spent nearly every cent of that restoration project on a large statue of Christopher Columbus. Even as a kid, this struck me as ridiculous. This idea that a statue could somehow revitalize a struggling downtown. And you know, I gotta tell you, it was not even a very nice statue. To be fair, they also replaced some of the sidewalks, but the end result was a slightly nicer looking ghost town. Her empty streets still presided over by this monument to Columbus. Perhaps we place too much faith in statues, and perhaps we venerate the past to the detriment of the future. But only God is worthy of our veneration, that eternal love that never crumbles or fades, that glory that can never be captured in stone or bronze or any graven image.